don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 64. Today we are going to talk about The Family Stone from 2005, uh, written and directed by Thomas Bazooka. And then uh, Junebug, from, also from 2005, directed by Phil Morrison, uh, written by uh, Angus McLaughlin, who has a, a wonderful name and yes. uh, also has written some other movies, including this, uh, his newest one's called Abundant Acreage Available, starring Amy Ryan. So I, I, anyway, that's not important. I just thought it was interesting. Um, yeah, I think that... Uh it's in some way affiliated, maybe produced by uh, Scorsese. Yeah. Uh, is it? Yeah, he's one of the executive producers. That I, I saw recently, I saw Angus McLaughlin's name somewhere on the Criterion Collection website, and I was, uh, uh, I'm still hoping that it is an indication that he is, that, that Junebug is getting a Criterion release which would not be unheard of uh, for, you know, for a movie like that. But uh, I, I suspect given Scorsese's involvement, uh, it, it may have to do with that movie rather than Junebug. What'd you, what'd you say it's called? Uh, abundant acreage. Yeah, abundant acreage available. Mm. Um, and, you know, the poster for Junebug, I am kind of captivated by it because it looks like a Wes Anderson sort of thing. It, it's done in the style of, uh, of the Moore. artist, the artist. Yeah. From the yeah. Film. I, that's weird. You mentioned that I came upon that. I saw it just in, in looking the movie up and I saw him, I think it's all posters.com. There's like a really big, like 27 by 40 inch, uh, poster that, that poster. And it's like $13. I'm like tempted because <laughs> as you'll soon find out, I fucking love, First, of all, I love both of these movies, but in very different ways, and and I love Junebug in a very sincere. This movie moves me uh, every time I see it. Way I'm glad you uh, mentioned that because I, watching both of these movies, they both have those moments where I'm like, well, I, you know, as I've gotten older, I like cry at weird stuff, like tear up at like <laughs> weird things, and, and and not that it's weird to find these movies, you know, emotionally moving, but. Uh, it definitely, they definitely, you know, hit me right in the old heartstrings um, <laughs> at, at, at different parts um, for different kinds of reasons, I guess, but, but all sort of tied up with family and sort of, I don't know, like fa- family and familial, familial love, but also sort of like responsibility and I, I, I yeah. don't know, obligation, like weird weird different things that it's dealing with around the concept of family and, and what that entails and what that requires of a person. Right. Right. And we were just saying how holiday movies in the case of the family stone seem to be a major vehicle for, uh, family stories. That's like how it's one of the main ways in which family stories get told. Um, and, and because of that, you know, that's why a lot of family stories are, you know, sentimentalized and, uh, 
uh, I don't know, not, not dealt with in honest ways, the, the way it is in June bug, but, uh, it's interesting. So, so I picked these two movies together because, because obviously they have so much in common just in like plots, uh, sort of surface level plots, not at all in tone, but it's interesting to think of these movies as like kind of mirror versions of each other. It's almost like June bug is kind of the family stone through a dark mirror. Uh, it's like, it's like all the lies that the family stone tells you June bug tells the truth about, uh, for, for instance, just to, just to get us started here. Uh, so there's a, in both of these movies, there's a depiction of this, this, uh, kind of tension between, uh, like brother-in-law, sister-in-law, kind of the old, the old switcheroo that goes on in the family stone where the two brothers kind of switch, uh, partners. Uh, no friction. <laughs> right. Right. And then in June bug, uh, you see there's, first of all, it doesn't happen. And the attempt that Johnny makes, what's that actor's name from the OC? Uh, ben, is it Ben something? I started to say Wallace. That's, that's a basketball player. Um, fuck. I had it. Up. Shit. I should, I, I should have looked this up. I can't remember that guy's name. What is it? Ben McKenzie. Ben McKenzie. Yeah. So as, as Ben McKenzie starts to put the moves on, uh, uh, Madeline, Madeline, um, you know, she basically sort of laughs at him. Like, I can't believe you thought that, that I was coming on to you. And so, so almost in every instance, if there is a, a, similarity in theme or subject matter in these movies Junebug is is telling you the the kind of darker truth about it and the family stone is telling you a sort of christmas card version of it uh which is not a discredit to the movie because it literally starts like like with a zoom into a christmas card like it's well aware that this is not reality yeah no, yeah, and that's a. I like that way of sort of framing the two movies next to each other. That Junebug is sort of the the real life reflection, whereas the Family Stone is more of like a fun house kind of reflection. Although it does have some things that are, you know, kind of hard hitting, true to life type stuff. There's less. I don't know. A good example of this, I think, is that in the Family Stone, there's all this sort of like you have these little moments where it's like the parents talking to each other, right? In uh, in the Family Stone, you have uh, uh, Craig T. Nelson. I almost said Tim Blake Nelson. Craig T. Nelson <laughs> and Diane Keaton as the as Sybil and Kelly, right? And they, they have these conversations where they're trying to like hide her, her that her cancer's back, and it's you know it's probably going to end up killing her. And you know, the, since the family's so fucking big, you have like little snippets of people sort of talking and like secrets upon secrets and sort of chambered little. Uh, mm-hmm. thing going on whereas in Junebug it's more like no one's talking about anything important at all really like uh, except for um, you know you have Ashley Amy Adams's character you know that's 
she plays so wonderfully wonderfully and like got a academy award nomination for and all that um is just all the time like obsessed with madeline like wants to know everything and she's asking questions that she thinks to her are sort of serious like tell me about you know your life and all this sort of um i forget like the specifics but she's asking these questions with like good intent but it's kind of played off as as comedy and the interactions are are sort of weird and, and like shut off except for one i can think of specifically and and it kind of gets back to this main point of of it being more realistic whereas the family stone is sort of setting it up in a a, a cinematic like kind of rom com sort of way and it's uh when uh eugene the father uh him and the mother are having breakfast or whatever out on the the sun porch and madeline comes to sit down and they're talking and the mother like has this weird kind of like uh, abrasive reaction to Madeline and leaves and speak so, of the devil. Yeah. And then, so it's just Madeline and Eugene and they're talking and Eugene's talking about his wife and he's like, she hides herself. Same as most. <laughs> and it's like such a deep, insightful thing to say. <laughs> and he just sort of like drops it and then gets up to look for a screwdriver that he can't find. Um, and it's just like he gets it like it's sort of when it slips of like nobody here is really communicating in any sort of useful way but you know yeah she hides herself right yeah and he he doesn't really eugene has very few lines um and uh, you uh, so you text me because i like i said i've seen this movie literally probably 25 times i I was obsessed with it when it came maybe maybe a couple years after it came out I saw it on like HBO or or something and uh DVR'd it I believe and then found the found the DVD but uh so you texted me the other night and you said something like Eugene is goddamn fascinating or yeah. something what what is uh, talk about Eugene like what's fascinating to you about him it's kind of what I was talking about where he has this, uh, it's that classic sort of thing of like, there's more going on below the surface than he sort of hints about. Right. Even from the very beginning where he's just sort of staring and he's like, I think I'll make her a little bird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's watching, he's watching a mattress blow up, uh, literally. And, and Morrison just sort of leaves the camera on this mattress being filled with air and I think it's supposed to be this like counterweight to this sort of kinetic, uh, more more dynamic lifestyle that uh, George and Madeline have in Chicago, because it, it cuts from their sort of art world to a mattress. You know, it's like twenty seconds of a mattress inflating, and then Eugene just standing there watching it, and out loud to no one, he says. I'm going to build her a bird. <laughs> yeah. And the, well, and then at the end, there's like, it, that's, I think this is when I texted you that I, I thought he was fascinating. It's when he's sort of walking Madeline out to the car and he puts his hand in his pocket, like as if he's going to give her the bird and ends up not doing it. It's sort of like a, like a hesitation. And, and, and then, you see him walking I by. I don't remember this. I remember. So I remember he's in the bedroom when Madeline finds the screwdriver that he's been looking yeah. for. Oh yeah, and no, she no, gives she happened. gives him the screwdriver, and there's this cool little camera move where it changes focus, and just barely you see Eugene 
slide this wooden bird that he's carved into his back pocket. Yeah, so yeah. he's hiding himself. That's what you mean. Yeah, that that's or not that's what you mean, but that's what I mean. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I got the, the scenes confused because because what I was tying it to is right after that, when they're getting in the car, you see him and his wife walking by and he just hands it to her without saying anything. And she yeah. goes, oh, what's this? And he's like, I'm just a little bird. <laughs> and and yeah. that's all that happened. He spent the whole film, like in fits and starts, like making this really, you know, nice looking little wooden bird. And then when he presents it to someone, he just sort of hands it to his wife without saying anything. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's like there's a, with so much. There's... Let's say like it, it's kind of, at least to him, seems like it's imbued with some kind of importance. And then he just sort of hands it off like. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah. But she, you're right. She admires it. You know, she likes it. Uh, she doesn't, you know, it, you can tell it's meaningful to her, maybe not as meaningful as it is to him. Cause like you said, he spent a couple of weeks, you know, whittling this thing, but, uh, there's an emphasis, uh, I noticed, uh, this last time I watched it on, on uh, people making things or, or people's relationship to art. Um, obviously, George and Madeline are in the art world. They meet at this sort of outsider's auction for the re-election of Jesse Jackson Jr., which like establishes this, you know, blue state, red state divide that the movie uh, is, is generally about. But... Uh, so you also learn about halfway through the movie that George sings and he's like known for singing these hymns in church. Uh, you also learn that I can never remember if her name is Pat or Peg because because Madeline calls her the wrong name a few times. The the mother Peg is Celia, yeah, Peg is her Peg, name. played by Celia Weston. Um you know, she does arts and crafts, Ashley keeps saying. Like, she makes these little birds. Um, I, I just put that together. That they're both built, they're both making birds. Uh, remember, because Madeline knocks off the little red bird yeah. off of the wall when she first gets there. Anyway, so they're both uh, uh, involved in making things. Obviously, Madeline's in the art world. Uh, George buys art and sings. And the only two people who don't do anything are the unhappy people, uh, uh, Johnny and Ashley. Yeah, um, and Johnny actually just resells things, right? Like he works in some business that like packages and resells like dishware uh, and stuff. Yeah, it's it's uh, Replacements Limited. I think that's a real place in North Carolina. Uh, yeah, he's just like. That, I think that's a place that like fixes things. I, I have a feeling that those those like dishes are, are the types of things that end up in like old time pottery and places like that, you know, um, or just little consignment stores or something. Um, but you're right. Maybe there is something to the fact that he is like not producing anything. He's like twice removed from any sort of productive hobby. Yeah, and when he does, the only thing he's like making, I guess, within the the film is the essay he's trying to write on uh, Huck Finn. Uh, when he, she says, "Oh, don't you love it?" No, that's why I'm getting the Cliff's notes. 
<laughs> yeah, and so even then, he like he doesn't read the actual book, right? He just like is skating, you know. And the he's very, it's sort of like different ends of being a kind of uh, a white male that isn't able to connect with your feelings and communicate with others. Like you, you sort of have Eugene on one end where he's he's a quiet guy, but there's a lot sort of going on under the surface. And he does make these things, and they are kind of tokens of his creativity and his affection, even, it seems. Whereas Johnny is just sort of frustrated by everything, it seems, and just wants to sort of smoke cigarettes and look at the newspaper and, like, work on his shitty yeah. car. And, and, like, the only time you see him even remotely kind of inspired or interested in something is the Meerkat documentary, or Prairie Dogs, or whatever it is. Right, and he's just show. trying to record it. Yeah, so I guess he could watch it again, and then he fucks that up because you know he's well, like the constant. Well, I, I think he, yeah, he's he wants to record it for his wife because he knows that she loves meerkats. Yeah, and then you know fucks that up. And, and that's what's so that's what's so devastating about that scene is like he's a piece of shit, but like in this one instance, you feel for him because he's so frustrated that he can't even do the one nice thing that he is sort of in a position to do and by trying to do this nice thing and failing he actually does a worse thing and like you know kind of causes a scene during her baby shower yeah which by the way these the saddest scene in this whole movie even considering the very emotional performance amy adams gives at the end uh, in the hospital which is great uh, a great performance. The saddest scene in this movie is uh, in dur- during the baby shower while that's happening with Johnny in the in the basement. There's a brief cut to George and Eugene at uh, an uh, a Waffle House overlooking the interstate, and it's totally they, there's no words. And they're just sitting there and that, that soundtrack, that recurring soundtrack, which I think we talked about the other day, is like, it, to me, it sounds like Silent Night, but Silent Night that's not quite resolving, in, in that doesn't quite resolve. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's maybe 10 seconds long and it's just Eugene and George eating at Waffle House, not saying a thing with that music sort of playing in the background. And I don't know why, but it's heartbreaking to me. Because that's how that's when these things happen in real life. That's how people react to them, right? There's no like big emotional overtures, and usually people don't make a scene. You sit quietly at Waffle House and don't say anything and eat your your. Well, uh, well all all it is is oh the the baby shower is going to be here. You know, it's it's maybe not appropriate for us. That's why Johnny's downstairs. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and so you know, it's just like okay. The boys have to leave, and I don't know. I I, I, I I don't know if I wish I could explain it or not, but uh, there's just something extremely sad about it to me. Um, in a, in a movie that features a miscarriage as the climax, you're like, this is the saddest scene. <laughs> well, the the movie kind of undercuts the the drama of that itself when you know there's this devastating performance of. Uh, you know, Ashley crying and, and sort of having her moment of doubt. It's sort of this, 
sort of this why hast thou forsaken me moment because she's so positive and so optimistic the whole movie and and then she just has this breakdown uh but then when george calls madeline to tell her that uh you know that there was a problem and and the baby died and um and it's basically you know a very tense moment madeline starts to cry and she's like doubled over and the artist guy what's his name is it frank uh, maybe that's the actor's name frank hoy i can't david, remember his david name Wark. david woke i think his name is Wark. uh w-a-r-k okay he uh he's leaning outside of his house and sees madeline doubled over and he says you got the acid reflux oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that guy is amazing that yeah that that dude um and how he's sort of emblematic of their attitude toward art, or at least Madeline's attitude toward art, which is she spends the whole movie trying to convince him that as his representative, his agent or whatever, she would, she'll, you know, be by his side and make sure that he makes all the most money and all this sort of stuff. Um, and tries to sort of pass herself off as this friend and ally of him when really it's just a reason for her to try to, you know, exploit his art and sort of make money from, his outsider status right the he the whole time i was sort of thinking from the very beginning when they have the art show i was thinking of uh um i forgot his name the the guy from murfreesboro the artist wes wayne white wayne white yeah um who is you know kind of outsider art does weird shit um that, that i'm a big fan of um and so this sort of commodification of art and not just that but the commodification of the artist and sort of their trauma and plight at the very beginning when they're selling, they're auctioning the painting, they're talking about the artist and they're like, this was painted before the autism diagnosis, uh, which is such a fucking weird, (laughs) uh, creepy thing to sort of throw in as a selling point for a piece of art. Like if the art is not standing on its own, then are you just buying this person's sort of a piece of this person's life and, and of their sort of, their their trauma and their sort of uh, agony maybe in some cases it, yeah it's 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 like um the appropriation of the unsophisticated by the sophisticated um it's 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 akin to that idea of like that we've talked about in a, in a lot of different contexts on this podcast about like th- this sort of siphoning uh you know, the trope of like the wealthy siphoning the authenticity of the poor, you might say in this case, like a a siphoning of the sophisticated of the authenticity of the, of the rural or the, the urban, you know, siphoning the vitality of the rural. Uh, I think that the artist is, uh, uh, he is sort of like, the the south's unconscious and and at one point he says my job is to make the invisible visible and you see and you see you know he's steeped in this sort of southern mythology and the subject of his paintings are like first and foremost slavery war uh penises and computers as if to say this is like some sort of 
some sort of uh, nightmarish postmodern version of the American South. Yeah, it's a, it's you know it's <clears throat> conceptions of race, masculinity, uh, modernity, and what's yeah. the other thing you mentioned? Uh, I guess just the specter of the Civil War in general, kind of violence. Well, and and at one point, you know, the artist guy David says, uh, "Oh, it's when he puts George George's face in the painting. Oh, yeah. He's like, I'll see your face, and it sticks with me." And and he he says that he doesn't know how to paint a black person's face because he he's never known one personally. Yeah, and so uh, he just and, and did you notice? Did you notice at the very beginning uh, when the three guys, uh, Will Oldham is one of the like art yeah. scouts or whatever they are, uh, who pull up at the artist's house. The black guy, uh, the actor's name I believe is Jerry Minor. I think it was on Mad TV. He doesn't go into the house. Yeah. Did you notice that the two other guys go in and he sits out on the lawn? Yeah, I didn't I, see that happen so early in the movie. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, right, right, yeah. And the, I mean, and the fact that when when she talks to to the, David Work, did I fuck up his first name? No, David Work, and uh, you know he's he's very much like his sort of racism i guess is is such that it's like old timey racism right it's sort of like comes from a world where that was kind of the status quo right so he'll just drop you know an n-bomb in the middle of a sentence and not think anything of it and sort of talks a lot about our fallen sons and you know the south shall rise again type stuff kind of like at the at the the baby shower when they're saying grace and he sort of goes off on his tangent um well, there's, there's, I, I think whether it's, you know, the director, Phil Morrison or the writer, Angus McLaughlin, I suspect it's the writer. Um, he sort of nails the, the paternalistic aspect of Southern racism. Uh, you know, before Trump, you know, ratified, uh, sort of old school, just, 1920s racism uh, there obviously there were still racists everywhere and especially in the south um, but I, I feel like before Trump there was a little more subtlety to it and that's not a compliment obviously but there there's a part when the artist guy is talking about his uh, depictions of, of the slaves and he says something like "poor fella," or something like that, like "poor, poor, oh, poor yeah, slave," yeah, yeah. or something like that. Like it's this really condescending uh, paternalism. Like, well, he's talking about how the how he was. He's like he was taken from his home and enslaved. Poor felt like that kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, yeah. To where it's like it, it's like not poor fella, like like utter depravity it's you know it's it's yeah. it's not it's hard to explain what i mean but it's 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 the racism that acknowledges the sort of phenomenon of racism and yet still creates this other out of a different race well i would say that that it doesn't it it, it doesn't really acknowledge it acknowledges that racism is a thing without interrogating its sources i guess so it's saying right. 
you know, he was this person I've painted was taken as a slave and that sucks, but that's just kind of the way it was right without, without ever thinking, well, why was it that way? Sort of what led to it being that way? What were the outcomes? Right. Um, and that's, that's and, part and, of that kind of paternal, like, um, you know, essentialist kind of racism. But if there's any doubt to it, the, the last time you see the artist is when Madeline is there to try to convince him to stay with her company. And he realizes that the company he has agreed to show with is, is led by a Jewish man. And she just sort of is confused. Madeline is confused. And she's like, well, he, he is Jewish. And he sort of realizes, well, that, you know, he can't do that. He can't get his Christian message out through a, a, a Jewish art distributor. And that's what seals the deal. And so it's this very, very uh, kind of uh, ambivalent resolution to Madeline's uh, mission. See, it, when when that happened, I kind of had doubt of whether or not the guy is Jewish. Because the way Madeline says it kind of seemed to me like maybe she's like just throwing that out there as a way to like get him to, to abandon. I don't know. Ch- check, check it out again. Because I was like... I was very interested in this in this last viewing, and she uh, she mentions some random place where where it's going to show where where she's saying he could show his art, and it's a it's a recognizably Jewish name, and and the guy just sort of interrupts her and says Jews, no that wouldn't want that's not where we want to be or something like that. And Madeline gets this confused look on her face and she says, Mark Lane is Jewish. And then he says, he like changes the subject and they talk about what it would take to change his mind. And he says he wants a fruit basket and he'll change his mind. And then it comes back and he says, did no one tell me that them people was Jews? So I, I think Madeline is genuinely confused. And then realizes that she is sort of capitalizing on this dude's racism uh, and then quickly sort of diverts away, but the damage has already been done, which, like I said, in a very sort of dubious way has has secured this artist for her company and solved her problems. Yeah. And the way that the, the artist is treated is sort of as as a joke uh, really th- i mean like you said he he's kind of comic relief in a couple of places but comic relief that is spouting some truly like heinous stuff uh like for i just think about when she's looking at his paintings and he's got the the painting with general lee and he's like i couldn't fit his whole cock on there i had to go around the back um, yeah that's when the the art scout guy from the beginning is like oh that's oh, yeah. general lee's cock <laughs> so it goes around on the back uh but I mean that's that's hilarious, but at the same time, it's like he's painting General Lee's cock so big because he is such a proponent of you know the the lost cause and all that that horseshit. Well, and that, that's what I mean when I say the the Southern un, the American South's unconscious. It's like yeah. General Lee's cock is the name of my new band, <laughs> right? Is like uh, a quintessential. Uh, or essential to the uh, Southern ideology, whether whether anyone knows it or not. 
Yeah, and and it's it's funny that you know this this character is this kind of almost like a like an id sort of thing where he's he's just sort of full of this praise for generally and southern cause and has a straight connection with God and has these crazy dreams and all this sort of stuff. Um, and all of that is so focused on this kind of, like you say, a paternalistic kind of masculine view of sort of Southern culture and ideology in a movie that has just some of the most kind of impotent men. Uh, I don't mean literally because, you know, George is just fucking constantly, which is something we should talk, we should talk about, but yeah. The, yeah. The and that, and like, even after uh, his brother accuses him of, you know, to, to Madeline saying, I don't know what George has not given you. Yeah. Um, but you know, this, this film with all these men that are sort of at their core kind of incapable of things. I don't know. Just bad at communication is maybe the simplest way to put it. Even George and Madeline, their, their relationship seems to be based mostly on like banging one out all the time. Yeah. And, and it seems like it's based on, um, this sort of mutual, maybe spontaneity, or uh, I, I don't know what it is because you're not really sure what George does for a living. Yeah. Um, it seems like, I mean, it's something that's making plenty of money because uh, he's, you know, at this art auction talking about. What's he say? Um, I'm going to buy the UFO. Yeah, he's like, I, I like, this what one makes me happy. I'm going to buy the UFO. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, when you when you contrast it with, with Johnny, who, you know, is working this sort of nine-to-five bullshit job, I think in that that uh, uh, montage is oh so God. great at, I got at Johnny's workplace. Let me guys <laughs> play it sometimes, and I always think they're gonna pull it out. They never do. <laughs> yeah, that guy's great, but they're like eating lunch, and you hear someone say, "This is the best fucking job I ever had," and then immediately someone says, "Shut the fuck up." <laughs> but he seems like, like the, the, I've the, had that job before. But he does seem to like enjoy the lack of purpose. I guess the the fact that he's got a, a sign job, he goes and he fills the boxes, and that's something he can do and then he you know he doesn't have to think about anything else he just does that and then he goes home and he doesn't have to worry about anything else it's sort of like he seems to be obsessed with not doing anything and just sort of floating around waiting for this baby to come that he's like afraid to acknowledge it's almost like we were talking about the the relationship to art and like having a productive hobby like all the characters have except for Johnny and Ashley. And it's almost like the only thing they're trying to produce and, or create is this baby and then it fails, you know? And so it's, it's devastating and in, in a lot of different ways. Um, something I was thinking about earlier though, before I forget was when uh, Madeline and Johnny are up talking about Huck Finn. Madeline mentions the theme of escape. She's like, Ooh, how about escape? And I, I feel like there's some connection between, you know, bringing up of all the themes of that book escape and the fact that, uh, Eugene and, uh, Peg are making birds. 
um, it's almost like art. It's like it's like the writer and director suggesting that art is like the means of escape. And like if Johnny were in a position to read and understand literature, maybe he would understand the you know that he needs to escape the way George did. Because um, that's another thing I said when we were talking about Eugene earlier. It's like Eugene sort of to me feels like what George would be if he hadn't left. Yeah. Although, you know, as you say, we don't know what George does, right? We don't, like, for all we know, like, he might be, have been miserable as well until he met Madeline. Um, it, but it, it is a sort of, it, I just think about at the end when George leaves, right? And it's after, you know, Johnny's hit him in the face with that socket wrench or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, instead of reacting or, you know, having a conversation or anything like that, anything that might be productive just leaves sort of, he says, like, get the hell out of here. And they sort of hit the highway and they go. Um, yeah. The, the last, the last line of the movie is so crucial because you're like, I mean, the first time you see this movie, you're like, are they gonna, you know, there's these weird things they don't know about each other. Like they don't, you know, they don't smoke or, or they both smoke and they don't know it. Yeah, and, uh, and so you're like, that, that kind of thing. Right. And, and, uh, based on what's just happened with Ashley and the sort of disagreement that George and Madeline have about whether or not Madeline should be at the hospital, you're like, are they, you know, do they even know each other? Is there, are they going to be okay? And so the last line when George says, I'm so fucking glad we're out of here is like any doubts you have is like, no, all the problems in their relationship were created by this trip to the South. <laughs> yeah which is like that's looking at it that way you have this idea of like entanglement with like ideas of family and home like that's a source of of conflict right and that's how in just the real world that's how a lot of people feel like oh fuck i gotta go home for thanksgiving or you know this year maybe not so much but that idea of like your family as a source of stress and anxiety that has to be endured uh, mm -hmm. rather than cherished i guess um which is the and it's only gotten worse since 2005 because yeah I, you know just just earlier today i listened to do you know the podcast you're wrong about no no that's it's getting getting pretty popular uh anyway <laughs> just i listened to a uh um uh, episode about uh Fox News and like losing family to Fox News. Yeah. Um, anyway. No, yeah. And QAnon, same sort of thing where people just yeah. like have no choice but to kind of stop talking to family members because they get so, you know, subsumed into everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And, and at the end of Junebug, you have that kind of feeling of like George is very much. And it's kind of that's what, part of what's so heartbreaking is because you feel like the whole film, him and Johnny are going to have some sort of, and this is a good kind of inversion or I guess perversion of like a, a typical movie trope, which is the siblings that don't get along, have some sort of reckoning and they either have sort of a final falling out or they have a sort of come to Jesus moment of, Hey, we're still brothers and we love each other. But at the, at Junebug, it's just Johnny throws the wrench at George and no one says anything about it. And it's sort of like, 
Johnny in the only way that is sort of accessible to him is trying to sort of push it over the edge and get somewhere. But George doesn't take the bait and just sort of walks off. Uh, yeah, it's it's really weird. Again, if we if we think about the family stone is kind of this weird mirror inversion of it. It's like uh, uh, Ben Owen Wilson or uh, Luke Wilson's character in the family stone ends up with this cut above his eye at the hands of his brother at the end of the family stone when they're arguing about, you know, there's a misunderstanding about whether or not <clears throat> uh, Meredith, Sarah Jessica Parker and Ben Luke Wilson slept together. Uh, so that's just another one of those weird sort of uh, similarities between these movies. But, that's that, that function in very different ways. Yeah. But, but even that, uh, and this is another sort of good example. That is the, the fight between uh, Owen Wilson and uh, Dermot. Luke Mulroney. Wilson. Oh, Luke Wilson. And then uh, I knew I was going to do that. And uh, Dermot Mul Mulroney. Uh, is the name I always almost fuck up. E even that fight in the family stone is very like comical. It's literally like a chase, like Tom and Jerry chase around the house. And then when yeah, they do roll on the ground, it's just, you know, one of them kind of slapping the other almost playfully. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in Junebug, uh -huh. what's so great about it is that it's so stupid and like clumsy when he throws the wrench at him, right? It's like, it's perfectly stupid. <laughs> and how it how it looks of just like a little like um and that sort of like clumsiness to it gives it this feeling of, of reality and also this kind of like heartbreaking kind of quality to it of like literally like trying to reach out to his brother for something and just gets nothing in return well yeah that's just that's a strange way to reach out um uh, <laughs> but you you see that that Johnny is deeply deeply repressed because he has no outlet. Uh, he he has no no relationship to art. You know what I'm saying? He has no means of expression or means of like you know consuming any sort of meaningful story as we see with his relationship with Huck Finn. Uh, and so he is just this deeply repressed person who, when confronted with these these awful feelings uh, of, of having lost a child, goes home and starts working on a car. His brother tries to talk to him about it, and he throws a fucking wrench at his face. Like, <laughs> it's uh, – and uh, it was the first time I noticed this was the last time I watched it uh, – when George gets hit, he sort of stumbles back a little bit and he, he hits this little, what I think is a, a little play pin for a baby mm -hmm. that's been assembled uh, in vain, it turns out. And he sort of fixes the little play pin, like moves it back to where it was uh, and then walks away. It's a, uh, a poignant scene. Yeah, just talking about Johnny being repressed makes me think of at the beginning when he's looking at the newspaper and he like lingers <laughs> over like a lingerie ad. Yeah. It's like hand drawn very kind of crudely right. and he's just sort of looking at it. 
<laughs> sort of. I, yeah. I remember watching that. Like that's a little weird. Um, and that seems to be like his one inner. You say like he has no outlet, which, which he doesn't. But it seems like the one thing that he's even attempting is to read the newspaper. But even then, like you don't know if he's actually getting anything out of it or it's just like that's the manly thing to do like that's what men do is sit and have a smoke and a cup of coffee and read the newspaper before work right Uh, but he's distracted by this cartoon drawing of a woman in lingerie yeah (laughs) yeah Um, because as we know like him and ashley are not sexually active at all it seems like um uh well yeah it's and it seems like there's there's this uh you know theme running running throughout that i think is most effectively communicated by, like I said, that silent night sort of constantly playing mm-hmm. um, throughout the movie. But you see the role that children, especially uh, male children or babies, play in the in this ideological world of the South, where you know Madeline is at the baby shower and the the, one of the women there's like do you have children and madeline's like oh no and then the woman just turns away from her because there's nothing else for her to say to her um and and so you have you have george who's the the firstborn of the of the brothers who is like this kind of hero in the family in a weird way and you know ashley tells him you you make me feel better than anyone and you don't even do anything or say anything and you know she says you're never here but but you're always here for me uh, and then at the end his mom says uh there there's not a thing wrong with you and he just sort of laughs at it there's almost this sort of christ-like uh characterization of george and the fact that you know johnny throws the wrench at him and he just sort of turns the other cheek and walks away uh, there's this there's this sort of christ-like characterization uh, that i uh, that i think is sort of critiqued in the movie by this uh, you see this emphasis placed on on uh male children they're kind of hoping for a boy and you know ashley says you wouldn't whatever it is about the crib you wouldn't paint a a crib brown or or whatever she says you wouldn't put a girl Uh, in a brown crib yeah um anyway i don't again i don't it's hard to really put your finger on exactly some sort of rational meaning behind this but uh it it seems like there's because of the Christian myth kind of informing all of this, you're sort of seeing how it, how it impacts these family dynamics and how if you're not the firstborn son, uh, it's, you're, you're kind of othered and less than, and you see how that works out for those people. Yeah. And George having this kind of, you know very sort of like christ-like turn the other cheek sort of image that's why i think the ending is so effective when he's driving driving away it's like you know, you know i'm glad we got the fuck out of there that kind of thing uh yeah it's the first time he shows any sort of outward animosity or like it's almost like a loathing almost of of this family and this town that sort of 
idealizes him and looks at him as like a success story um which which is interesting and it, you were talking about uh sort of the role of christianity in the movie and that's it was a very sort of I feel like adequate sort of look at like christianity sort of weaving its way into so many things in the south and a scene that i really enjoyed was when they're at the church and the the pastor comes over and uh madeline's there and she and he's like uh can i pray for your family real fast like can i pray for you real fast and she's like kind of creeped out and doesn't know what to do and i was like i relate to that so much because like not growing up in a very religious family and then meeting people that are and they're like saying grace and it's like oh can i pray for you and that sort of stuff you're like i guess but (laughs) but but it shows uh that, that sort of how it it's in so much of southern culture and and you know maybe not as much now as it was before but still very much a strong kind of social sort of force that pops up in random places when you don't expect it and if you're not expecting it or you're not familiar with it it can be sort of like weird and alienating yeah um another aspect of that scene that i noticed is when the preacher comes up and says call, calls madeline miss johnston Oh, yeah, and yeah. she doesn't she doesn't respond to it and he says is the great sort of fuck you line she he says you don't know who you are yet do you oh <laughs> it was just like it's so fucked and like ominous when you think about it <laughs> yeah yeah uh you don't know who you are yet do you no we get uh, that because uh, you know lava she didn't change her last name because it's just not a thing in middle eastern culture and i don't give a shit either way and so she didn't change her name. And after we got married, my mom sent us something and it said uh, to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Matthew Spencer. And I was like, oh, gross. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> it's, it's weird, man. I, I, I can definitely say if I were a woman, I would not change my name. Uh, and I, I, do not, uh, I do not think it's a good idea for women to change their names as if, as if the identity of who you are changes. Yeah. When you get married, you know, uh, I'm sure some women do it because they maybe prefer that new last name or sort of you for whatever reason, like maybe they don't really care for their last name or they're trying to get away from it or they just like their husband's last name. And think it sounds good. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously they, people can do whatever they want, but I, I, uh, I think it's a very strange tradition. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely harkens back to the whole core concept of marriage as some form of ownership which is kind of where it comes from but anyway um the family speaking of marriage the family stone we should talk about it some because we haven't really got to it yet and it's a movie that like i remember back in the day seeing like ads for it on tv and being like i'm not interested um and so i watched it for this on your recommendation and as far as like christmas movies and like christmas family movies go i think it's one of the better ones that i've seen yeah, second only to Die Hard. Yeah, um, it, it's better than like Love Actually and all those other, yeah, kind of shitty. <laughs> it has better politics, maybe, even though they're still kind of fucked in places. I don't know, but um, well, it's it's uh, yeah, it's like they have good politics, but it's almost like it's it's sort of this. I think I said this in a text. It's like sort of a woke fest. It's like, oh, yeah, let's let's see how. Let's see how liberal we can be, you and know, that, and that's why which, I like which it. is great, you know, which is like, I'd rather see that than let's see how fucking racist we can be or whatever. 
No, the reason I like that, well, I mean, it's not done perfectly, but the reason that I like that is because Sarah Jessica Parker's character sort of has to come in and is able to kind of call some of that into question uh, and doing it in kind of a stupid way of like, I'm just playing devil's advocate and blah, blah, blah. Like, wouldn't you want your son to be straight because his life would be easier? And don't you want your children's lives? Like, that's kind of maybe not the best way to go about doing that. But it is, it was interesting to see sort of the idea that if someone is so sort of like liberal, they too can be, uh, you know, kind of uh, prejudiced, I guess, against like certain people. Um, because this family is not necessarily like a far left wing family or things like like that. They're just very sort of socially liberal, socially progressive. It's Uh, interesting you say that because the way I saw this movie was, was very different. I saw it in 2005 in the theater and, um, a, a couple of my friends and I, we had just gotten out for the semester. I was, I was still playing baseball at this time. I heard my freshman year of college and we like finished our, our requirements for the day. We were going to have like two weeks off, which was a big deal because it's college sports are a fucking job you don't get paid for. And we went to the theater that day and somehow a couple of us decided we were just going to see as many movies in a row as we could. And me and one other buddy are the only ones that made it the whole time. And we saw six movies in a row. Um, and the family stone <laughs> was one of them. So we were, I was there from noon until midnight. Uh, and, and some other friends like snuck us in some, some food, uh, for survival purposes. But I, uh, I, I think I remember all the movies I saw. Uh, it was hostile. Um, the family stone grandma's boy <laughs> nice fun with dick and jane munich and rumor has it <laughs> holy shit what a weird group of movies yeah and if you doubt the claim you can look up the release dates of those movies and see that they were all in the theater at the same time but what i was going to say is uh the family stone was like the second or third movie and uh, it was still like four of us at that time. And we got maybe 30 minutes into the movie. And I don't, I can't remember what happened, but it, it must have been after a part with the um, uh, gay interracial couple <laughs> that my friend stood up and declared this a liberal movie and walked out of the theater. I mean, it is the movie is definitely passing off their viewpoints as the correct viewpoints, right? Like it's it's not like it's not. Yeah, calling but anyone. here's the thing: their viewpoints are the correct yeah, viewpoints. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. You know, but but then the only push. It's funny, like the only pushback they get against any of those viewpoints is Sarah Jessica Parker's character, and you know she's wrong in what she's asserting, but the fact that she's even sort of putting forth these ideas in the first place is enough for, you know, Kelly, the father, Craig T. Nelson, who has been like big teddy bear the whole time to like hit his fist on the table. It's like, that's enough. And it's like, yeah, heart wrenching moment. And all she's doing is 
you would think that if their viewpoints are so correct, they would just, you know, tell her you are wrong and here is why, but instead slam the fit, like has to be shut down forcefully sort of emotionally. Well, it's, there's, there's more going on. I, I feel like psychologically with that scene, because what they're, what they're frustrated at is her inability to read the situation. And, and she is putting, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's character, Meredith is putting this sort of like, rational scientific kind of political issue of homosexuality above this kind of interpersonal relational issue and everyone at the table except Meredith understands that they are sort of loving this and caring for the uh, uh, fat I think his name is Thad the yeah, brother is. who is uh, deaf and in this gay relationship. Uh, and everyone at the table understands what's happening. They're sort of like puffing him up a little bit and, and just sort of singing his praises. And, and Meredith is on this different wavelength, like I said, of this like hyper-political, rational uh, conversation. And there's a point a very brief cut to uh, Claire Danes' character, Meredith's sister, where she just like says her name. She says Meredith, and she sort of shakes her head. And it, if you go back and look, you you see it looks like she's like on the brink of explaining to Meredith what's happening, and Meredith just does not, just does not get it, and that's uh, infuriating. It's infuriating to watch, but it's, you can imagine, you know, put yourself in these characters position, uh, to just like, it's just like watching someone not get the joke over and over, but not get the joke in a morally compromising way. Um, that, that scene is hard to watch, uh, especially when, when Kelly, Craig T. Nelson's like, (laughs) starts to yell at her. Yeah. Yeah. But, but. You know, and all that, you know, all that I would say is true of the scene, right? And that that is what makes it kind of like so like cringy to watch is the fact that like you obviously understand that you're in this family that has a very unique dynamic. And it's a dynamic that they're very invested in and proud of and very supportive of in every sort of direction. Um, And they have a very sort of liberal politics and all these sorts of things uh, missing all of that. But then the reaction to that moment is not to in part of it is like you're saying there, it's sort of the family taking for granted that she understands what's what the sort of environment that she stepped into, but she clearly doesn't. Right. And that's why she keeps stepping well, in shit and hitting rakes every time she turns right. around. Right. And, and Kelly to in, in that character's defense, he tried, he sees where this is going when, when uh, Matt, uh, Meredith brings up nature versus nurture and he steps in very calmly and he says, Meredith, most of us here believe sexual orientation is a result of a genetic predisposition, much like handedness, yeah, <laughs> like, is- like it's something biological, biologically innate. And so he, he has done his best to sort of clue her in. Like you do not want to, go down this road and she just says 
oh, well, you know, one of the uh, factors of determining, you know, if someone is gay may very well be the environment. No, yeah, she's wrong. Like, don't misunderstand. She's wrong completely. Like, she's just being, you know, kind of tone deaf to everything going on around her. Um, Yeah. But just that, I don't know, I felt like the reaction was more... I don't know. I felt like the the family and part of it's like the whole dynamic of the film is that she's the outsider in kind of every way imaginable. And so they're kind of pushing her toward the margins and trying to push her out basically the whole time. Um, And it's that kind of idea of (laughs) kind of like what went around on uh, on Twitter back, you know, maybe a year or two ago, like so much for the tolerant left, like that that, that sort of idea. Um, Yeah. And you know, it's not, again, not a perfect messenger, but that I felt like that was a big kind of undercurrent of the film is like, they're so accepting and tolerant that to it's, it's, it's the sort of Karl Popper. Uh, what the fuck is that thing called? The, um, the open state and its enemies or something like that. Open yeah, society. And its enemies. a different idea. I've brought it up on the podcast before. It's the idea that a society can become so tolerant that it becomes intolerant towards those that are not tolerant like that sort and you know it's a it's a not a perfect idea but that they are so you know completely you know soaking in the in this this sort of milieu in which they exist that because she is so sort of obstinate and is failing to read the room and all these sorts of things uh, they become sort of actively hostile toward her right to the point where you have the scene where he goes to uh, ask for the ring and uh, the mother is just like, no, I'm not giving it to you. I'm not giving it to you for that woman. Um, right. And you, you see that their their hostility to Meredith is really a reaction to their the sort of obvious reality that, that Meredith and Everett do not belong together. And so and, and that's what's interesting. At the end, you see that. Ben, Luke Wilson, and Meredith are together, and she seems to be sort of have been seamlessly integrated into the family. <laughs> and so, no yeah, they're, they're sort of perceived, uh, uh, you know, bad relationship with Everett is actually the thing causing this sort of uh, uh, the sort of animosity towards Meredith. Yeah. And the idea that Everett is just so fucking special that he, you know, surely he can't be with this woman, right? It's kind of sort of a similar thing to what we had with George, but they're just too polite to say anything in Junebug. Um, and so, yeah, the, and the whole brother switch wife swap thing was the, the fact that it happened so seamlessly is... <laughs> Yeah, like the night of Meredith is comes to to Ben's bedroom. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm, I don't think that's how it works. Yeah, and the the ring, like putting the ring on her finger, like it's just it was all very, and Everett being so kind of creepy and kind of single minded. Like after he spends that <clears throat> night talking to her, um, I don't know. It, it was just very. It, it, that's kind of the far fetched part of the movie. Uh, the uh, the worst part of the movie, going back to that uh, dinner scene, the most ridiculous part of the movie is after Meredith has insulted Thad uh, and and left the table after being reprimanded. Um, you see Thad 
he's just like infantilized. He is like this sulking two-year-old who realizes he's been insulted for his sexual orientation. And he is just like looking down despondent. Like this is a grown man. (laughs) Yeah. He's not like nine. uh, But if if you don't remember it, I highly suggest going back and taking a look at the look on Thad's face after Meredith has left the table and when his uh, Diane Keaton is trying to get his attention and she like throws the fork yeah. to get his attention uh, and she has to give them this little pep talk about how normal he is. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's kind of cringy how infantilized that character becomes yeah yeah and something just sort of talking about things about the movie that were that stuck out to me as being kind of this was very much you know put together as a major you know uh movie release that a lot of people were going to see is that all of the siblings have some sort of really nice job in a a different major american city like even Amy, right? That's the Rachel McAdams character. Uh, yeah. Who's sort of like presented as almost like the fuck up. She's like a teacher that lives in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, and Luke Wilson's character is like living in LA and is like a film editor or whatever. And then yeah. uh, Thad's an architect in Boston. Architect, yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of, it, it, they all were successful in their field and live in a major American city, which is a very like American movie major release thing right yeah especially can contrast that with with june bug and like that's definitely the more realistic thing it's like sometimes one person from the family will leave and and be successful uh but most times it's like you know like johnny and you're just like working at replacements limited and kind of crashing at your parents house until you're 28 yeah, and even the uh, towny guy that Amy ends up with, I can't remember that actor. Brad Stevenson? Yeah. Uh, Paul, Paul Schneider? Schneider? Is that right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's he's like the one towny that we meet, and he's like a paramedic. Like, he's doing good. Um, yeah. Everybody is comfortable, which is something that you have to have in a Christmas movie, I guess, if it's going to be like a feel good movie. Um, but far from, from reality and you know, this giant house, it's, it's very much like a iconic, it, like holiday movie, big family home. It's, it's a postcard or a, uh, a Christmas card of a movie. Everything yeah. is perfect. It snows on Christmas. Um, Except for the mother dying. And again, that's a, yeah. that's that's an Anthropocene's special is the mother dying. I was going to, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to connect that to that, that theme. Uh, you know, we've so often sort of lamented this sort of uh, ethic of care. And we, you know, we talked about interstellar explicitly rejecting the ethic of care. Uh, and here's a movie that in the family stone that sort of, really laments the sort of maternal caregiver and, and sort of this, this maternal spirit of the family and, uh, and, and is sort of about 
passing on that legacy of this of this maternal uh i don't know what you call it maternal spirit seems a little bit abstract but uh but it, but it does seem like that's sort of uh undergirding most of the movie is like will amy adams not be so not amy adams uh amy uh, what's her name? Adams. Rachel McAdams. I do that too. I get them confused all the time. <laughs> yeah. Not Amy Adams. Amy played by Rachel McAdams. Um, will she sort of get her shit together and not be so mean to everyone? And you see by the end, she sort of seems to be maybe in a better place and, and is sort of picking up the torch left by her mother. Um, so yeah, I, I think you can definitely connect that to that that trope or that theme that we've picked up on, on all these movies about the sort of imaginative expulsion of the mother and what sort of, uh, you know, how movies do that. Do they do it to, to be, to promote masculinity or do, or is it like a lament to the disappearance of, uh, of maternal care? Yeah. And the, the sort of, and it has all those kinds of hallmarks where like the father uh kelly is very like stoic about the whole thing um well yeah you know mostly stoic and like sort of trying to keep everything together and they're they're both trying to sort of keep everything together and the only character that uh well i, I guess not the only character the two sons the oldest sons everett and then whatever luke wilson's character's name is ben ben um when ben finds out he just walks in and hugs his mom for a long time and then she sort of realizes that he knows um and then she tells everett later on and they have that moment um but it, it has those kind of tropes of like trying to protect the children and then the father's being stoic and trying to sort of grin and bear it and and you know go down with the ship sort of and uh you know the kids fight out and sort of all come together in her memory and they keep everything going and everything's perfect and sort of the family keeps marching on and even though they've lost the mother they still love each other and come together in the same house and they have new members now and the family's expanding and flourishing um and it's a very <laughs> now compare compare contrast that <laughs> with the June last Bob. line of june Bob. yeah i'm so fucking glad we're out of here <laughs> um but yeah, the, you know that's it's made to be a feel-good movie and it, it is at the end of it even though she uh you know diane keen's character's dead um it's very you know, kind of heartwarming. You're like, oh, well, you know, everything's going to be all right. And that, let's, write some, let's write some fan fiction alternate ending where, where Diane Keaton has left Kelly. She didn't die. She like got a new <laughs> husband. <laughs> <laughs> she moved to, to Ibiza with some like yoga instructor guy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I don't want to like, it's kind of easy to be like, oh yeah, you know, feel good movie jerk off motion but you can't really understate that that's a message that people will always want to see because it is kind of far from reality in a lot of ways especially it, now like I, I feel like people are going to be watching christmas movies this year with like a whole new level of appreciation for them yeah christmas movies just i mean christmas itself you know it just sort of tells you the Tells you the lies that you want to hear, uh, and Junebug doesn't really tell you those lies. It's talking about the same aspects of family, but it's it's kind of telling you the truth about them. There's a 
an aspect I, I noticed in the family stone that I had not noticed until this time. Uh, it seems to be a bit of a wink from the director, Thomas Bazooka, uh, who, whose first movie big Eden, uh, is, is I think less of like a family feel good and more of a, a sort of independent thing. And his newest movie called let him go with Kevin Costner and Diane Lane also appears to be a sort of indie, uh, more, a more serious film. Um, all that to say, I think Thomas Bazooka is well aware of like, um, kind of the sen- uh, sentimentalism of, of this movie. Obviously he's aware of it, but, um, so there's a moment when Everett is ring shopping, uh, wedding ring shopping out in the town with Thad. And he asks Thad what he thinks of a ring. And Thad says something like, don't marry her. Please don't marry her. And Everett says, I, I am, you know, I am going to marry her. And Thad's next line you know, in an explanation of why he should not marry her is she's not mom. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is like the most Freudian thing of all time. Um, you shouldn't marry this woman unless she's your mom. And which is, you know, fucked up, but I had never noticed this until this time. There's a scene in the living room at at the Stones house. And if you look carefully in the background, there on the bookshelf, you can see clear as day uh, the title uh, Freud, A Life for Our Time by Peter Gay. I saw that. I, I remember Did I, you saw, see it? I saw a Freud book, but I didn't I didn't put it together. It just seems to me in a in a movie that that would say something like, "You can't marry her; she's not mom." For for there to be a visible uh, acknowledgement of Freud is is a, a bit of a wink from the director. I like that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of of uh, bringing Freud and. Zizekian stuff into the the (laughs) fold. Um, Yeah, I guess Zizekian stuff is mostly like Lacanian stuff, which is Freudian stuff. Yeah, which it's all Freudian stuff, uh, which is all true. Weirdly, did you know that? So all all of it. It, it, Just imagine like that that uh, scene and whatever that whichever new Star Wars movie that would I guess the first one that had Han Solo in it. I know like if Corey listens to this, he'll be like, you motherfuckers. But um, <laughs> the newest, the first film of the newest trilogy that I don't remember the name of, um, where they're talking to Han Solo about like all the shit that happened in the original films. And he's like, it's all true. It's like that. <laughs> but like somebody talking about Freud and just being like, it's all true. All of it. Um, yeah. The family it- stone, uh, an enjoyable, uh, big Hollywood cast movie called a, a, a mom-com a, mom, a, a, a memoriam memoriam mom memoriam mom-com um, yeah 
<laughs> but yeah, I think it was a good idea to sort of put it next to Junebug because it's because like you say, they're like weird funhouse reflections of each other. Um, or I, I would say like Family Stone is the funhouse reflection, whereas Junebug is kind of more of the more, I don't know, realistic, maybe isn't the best word for that, but uh, real honest. F- yeah, honest, the <laughs> sort of uh, sort of uh, film. Um. Yeah, I was a fan. I like both. Of yeah, them. yeah. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm glad you were because it would have been awkward if if you hadn't at least uh, you know to some degree enjoyed these because it would have been you being like these movies suck and I've been like yeah but did you did you think about this part? But the Waffle House. Did you <laughs> but see the this? Waffle House, Matt? <laughs> um, uh, I, de- I mean, I, I definitely. I don't know. It's just I know. Like I think everybody knows these kinds of people that they only watch kind of feel good movies or sort of like this kind of film, right? The kind of person that has watched like a billion rom coms, um, and I'm not I'm not just talking about women because that's sort of the stereotype is like people that watch like the big Hollywood kind of feel good romances or whatever. Um, hey, ser- serendipity kicks ass, man. So I, the first time I watched Serendipity, I was like yelling at the TV. I was so upset. I was like, don't what? get on the plane. He's coming to oh, you. Don't. I, I thought you meant because you didn't like it. You no, meant because you're so invested. No, I just got so frustrated. <laughs> I was like, stop getting on planes. Um, uh, but, and that little fucker in the devil suit who like hits all the buttons in yes. the elevator. Damn it. Fuck you. Damn it. I don't know who that kid is. And I'm not even talking about the character. I'm talking about the actor. <laughs> Fuck you. We're going to find you. We're going to beat your ass. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I remember what I was talking. Anyway, the people that that are just like very into those kinds of movies because they make you feel good and they're all that kind of stuff is great. I'm definitely more the person, and this is no surprise, uh, that would rather sort of watch Junebug and be sad about it and sort of think about it a lot, and sort of just sit quietly in a chair and be like, "Why is the world the way it is?" Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm more into that that angle, and and you know, it's also just like well written. Yola Tango did the music, which is cool. So. Yeah, uh, it's also, I, I think, probably something we haven't talked about that that informs both of our enjoyments of of uh, Junebug is a refreshingly realistic depiction of the South. Yes. It's like suburban Southern America, Southeastern America, and most of the actors have legitimate uh, Southern accent. Celia Weston is great. Amy Adams is good. Uh, uh, Scott Wilson, I think is the name of uh, the actor who plays Eugene. Yeah. Uh, if, if there's a, if there's a weak point with, uh, Junebug, I, I think it's Ben McKenzie's performance. Um, uh, it's, you know, this was just during or, or just after the OC and he was clearly trying to like get some indie cred. Um, and it's, it's a little, over the top in some places. Uh, and there's one moment, I don't know if you notice this, not with, not with, uh, Ben McKenzie, but George, uh, when, when he shows up back at the house and Ashley has gone into labor and Madeline is sort of rushing out the door and he sees for the first time, Madeline smoking. And his line is, are you smoking? But the actor, uh, Alessandra Nivola or something like that, uh, who is definitely not a Southern American, uh, 
he said he delivers the line are you smoking like this he says are you smoking <laughs> it's like egregiously bad i don't know how it made it into the final cut of the movie it is straight up british are you smoking yeah that's yeah he's sort of the odd i think that's that kind of the fact that he sticks out sort of in the, that respect is part of what gives George that kind of air of being sort of not of these people or sort of like above these people in some way. Right. He has that kind of yeah. feeling. Yeah. Um, well, and, and mo- most of his performance is pretty good. He, yeah. you know, when, when we were talking about that part earlier, when the preacher says to Madeline, you don't know who you are yet, do you? Uh, George says, when the preacher calls her Mrs. Johnston, he says, that's you, darling. It's like, it's weird to think of this sort of cosmopolitan woman being married to someone who says darling unironically. Yeah. But you know, part of the, her whole thing is exoticization of the outsider. Those that don't quite fit into what she thinks the world looks like, which is, I guess the Chicago art world. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, the the like you're saying, realistic portrait of the South, it just makes me think of the lady, the the neighbor that's just like out in the yard, just sort of looking at stuff that's going on. Yes. I remember that was happening and La was watching the movie with me and she goes, That's so creepy. I was like, No, nah, she's just seeing what's going on. <laughs> she's just having a peek. <laughs> well, I think I think that that little moment there is like you kinda you kinda get the sense that despite their uh, sort of consciously professed Christianity, the Johnstons are not very good to their neighbors. They don't invite her. They don't invite her to the baby shower. Uh, when the when Ashley starts to go into labor, you know they don't include her. She's just out there standing. And you see, you know, when she waves to Madeline, she is in a similar position to Madeline that is on the outside of this family. You see this sort of tribalism of the family, despite their sort of, despite their Christianity. Yeah. Well, I guess that's about it. Junebug is a fucking masterpiece. If you haven't seen it, watch it and pay attention. It's, I feel like, I feel like I could keep talking about this movie for like three more hours. There's like so many, it, it makes me, I want to do, you know, the, what's the podcast? It's like minute by minute where <laughs> it like breaks down star Wars minute by minute or whatever it is. Yeah. I could do that with June bug because there's something in every frame that is very intentional and, and, uh, indicative of, uh, of a very interesting theme or something. Have you seen uh, his uh, Phil? Fuck, what's his last name? Morrison. Morrison. Have you seen his other film films? No, no. It's there's one with uh, I can't remember that guy's name. Uh, he's like a Christmas tree salesman yeah, or something. Like, I was just say it's called All Is Bright with Paul Giamatti and Paul Rudd. The two Pauls. Oh, that's you know that's interesting. Uh, All Is Bright is is a, a lyric from Silent Night. Yeah. All is calm, all is bright. Uh, interesting. But he apparently like that. Those are his only films, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I uh, and and Junebug got got good press. You know, like Amy Adams got the 
nomination and there's all these blurbs about how Phil Morrison's like the next Jim Jarmusch and, and all these things. And, and it doesn't seem to have done much afterwards. Yeah. So you should watch it. Yeah. Go. Cool. Cool. And I, I, if I hope it gets a Criterion release, I really do. I will be the first to buy it. It, it, it very much feels like a Criterion movie. Yeah, it's in sort like of, uh, you know, Yola Tango did the music, like you said, and they did the music for Old Joy, Kelly Reichardt's Old Joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this sort of, this feels like the, uh, you know, what Old Joy is for the, for the Northwest, uh, Junebug sort of feels like for uh, the Southeast. Yeah, I could see that. And, and uh, I think Old Joy was 2006. This is 2005. But it, it has it's it's this well-made sort of pre-digital uh, or like pre-streaming uh, independent American film that is that is not doing any sort of uh, uh, what what do you call it uh, shit? What's the word when you're trying to please an audience? pandering uh it's doing no pandering to to audiences um so yeah i can't i can't recommend it highly enough and i'm surprised i hadn't seen it already because it was released in that time period when i was in high school and i was just like watching every movie that had the laurels on the cover (laughs) Um, so i don't yeah like me me and you and everyone we know and uh uh trying to think of like early tooth uh squid and the whale magnolia you know just all that yeah, sort yeah. of stuff um so yeah i don't know how I, how i didn't see this at some point but definitely definitely worth the time um we haven't talked about what we're doing next week so i'm not oh yeah shit <laughs> let's let's do june bug again oh yeah this is now the june bug podcast <laughs> no, um i don't know do you have any ideas Never. Uh, let's. I don't watch movies. Oh, oh, one I did have an idea for. We don't have to do this next week. Uh, I texted you about Cool Hand Luke. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't seen that movie in like 15 years, and I watched it the other night, and it kicks ass. And I promise you'll love it if you watch it again. Yeah, I'll do that. I haven't seen it. Like, like you, I haven't seen that movie in a very long time, but I, I'm up Dude, for it. I am fucking pumped about that movie. I'm like, I like understand the world in terms of Cool Hand Luke now. <laughs> Jits and I watched it the other night and like we've had you know just random conversations about different things and I can't stop alluding to Cool Hand Luke as like an example of you know to, to make some sort of philosophical point uh, every morning you so, wake up and you eat a hundred eggs or whatever <laughs> yes oh man yeah, so we'll do that Cool Hand Luke Cool Hand Luke give me an excuse to watch it again <laughs>